Welcome back, dreamers. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick, and today I'm joined by actress and cast member Samantha Simon as we celebrate the 35th anniversary of The Black Cauldron, the animated feature that almost killed Disney animation. Based on the first two books of the five-book The Chronicles of Perdane by Lloyd Alexander, Disney first obtained the rights to adapt the books as films in 1973, but it would not open in theaters till almost 1985. This is the film that seems to be the center of why this era is known as the Disney Dark Ages, but let's get into it. The film was pushed at the studio by Ollie Johnson and Frank Thomas of the Nine Old Men, saying that the property could be as good as Snow White, but the studio wouldn't actually begin to develop the work until almost 1980. During the 70s, the studio spent time approaching an animation style that could best handle multiple storylines and well over 30 characters. So what happened? Let's buckle up. From what we can find, the first point of the issue is the constant rotating of staff and artist. Originally, Rosemary Ann Sisson and Rob Clements were brought in as writers, and Vance Gary would be assigned as the storybook artist. He designed the characters, outlined the action with Sisson and Clements, and he designed the locations. In the beginning, the Horde King wasn't even the central villain of the film, and originally looked like a big-bellied Viking with red hair, a Viking helmet, and a mean temper. But John Musker would be brought in to the film's first director, and he had to hash out the first act, and a young, developing animator named Tim Burton even submitted artwork for the product. This version of The Black Cauldron more embraced the humor present in Alexander's books, but this didn't seem to work for the studio. 1979 would mark the departure of Don Bluth from Disney Animation after some conflict, and with his departure, he took over 13 animators with him that made up over 25% of the animation staff for Disney. This would be a terrible loss for the Disney company, and we would see the emergence of Bluth's own animation studios who would give us some of the most iconic films of the next 15 years. Around this time, production for Fox and the Hound would wrap, and Art Stevens, Richard Rich, Ted Berman, and Dave Meichner were brought over to work on this picture, and Ron Miller would quickly replace Stevens with Joe Hale. With Hale involved as producer, they could officially begin production in 1980. The more we look into this, though, the timelines from person to person get awful murky, and some of this is covered in the wonderful documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty. Because they weren't quite sure what productions to continue with. Because of its popularity, Dungeons and Dragons, it was thought that this would be a great project to continue with. Mitt Kale, another one of the nine old men, was brought in to completely overhaul and redesign the movie and give it more of a Sleeping Beauty aesthetic, which is why Elanwi resembles a young Aurora. This also included making the movie in 70mm, and this would be the first movie to be made in 70mm since Sleeping Beauty. And after some confusion, because of this, a lot of the film was animated in the wrong perspective and all had to be redone. There was constant internal tension, and a script just could not be agreed upon, and a new creative team was formed which then added David Jones and Al Wilson, and they added the second book from the Pierdain series to this story. This was when Sessions, Clement, and Musker all left the picture, and Hale overhauled the Horn King to the nightmare fuel that we would see in the final film. Along with this, it was decided that the central action scene would involve a group called the Cauldron Born, and this was developed as this kind of central action moment of the picture. 
All of this was combined with an animation strike in 1982 fully continued to set back this film. I know it's hard to keep up without like a string chart, but stick with me because two large players are about to come onto the scene. The release of this film continued to get pushed back further and further, and we would emerge into 1984, hopeful that it could be prepared for a Christmas release. And Michael Eisner joined the Walt Disney Company after the death of Ron Miller. This would also see the addition of deep enemy of the pod, Jeffrey Katzenberg, as the head of Walt Disney Pictures. And at this point, both Katzenberg and Eisner wanted to quickly liquidate and end the Disney animated studios. Despite all of its troubles, the film would mark several technological advances in animated film that would set the tone for the next 20 years of animation. The first was a process developed by David W. Spencer called Animation Photo Transfer, which he would win an Oscar for. I have to admit, though, after reading about it, this is I'm not sure that I could properly explain it to you. So please go online, check it out, because it is actually very, very cool. This would also mark the first use of CGI in an animated film and would inspire the CGI used in The Great Mouse Detective. Looking at this movie now, it's kind of obvious where it was put in, but I also can't imagine this being done with classic animation, so it was a great first use of CGI. To go along with the Cauldron Born scene, the studio was also developing hologram technology that would accompany the film at every single movie theater. And as the beings emerged from the cauldron, a hologram would be projected over the animation on screen and make it appear as if it was crawling towards the audience to devour them. But this would all be cut because of Katzenberg and Eisner being involved in the production. And even though tests work, I can't imagine every movie theater in America being able to afford the hologram technology. The Black Cauldron would be the first animated film for the studio that would garner a PG rating. And after a disastrous 1984 screening, over 15 minutes of content would need to be cut in order to not gain a PG-13 rating. The screening was said to terrorize audiences, and there was no way the 1984 Christmas release was going to happen, so it became a 1985 summer release, the spot we would now know as a blockbuster summer movie. The cuts totaled to about 12 minutes altogether, and during this time you had to go in and literally cut frames from the film reel, but this also meant that you had to be careful and you had to still blend them together so it wasn't jarring. And literally at one point, Katzenberg himself was headed to the studio to cut the film himself, which would have been disastrous. Because need I remind you that while he did have experience with film at Paramount, the man had virtually no background in animation. The biggest cuts for the film came from the fabled section at the center called The Cauldron Born, which I've discussed a little bit. And when you watch the movie, you can tell exactly where it happened. This film would also mark one of the only Disney animated films without songs, and it may be the first that did not have any. The original budget was over 44 million, but it only grossed 21.3. And on further research, there's no actual record of an international box office. Though it did happen, no numbers are present. It opened to only $4 million in its first weekend, and the entire run made less than the Care Bear movie, which was released the same summer. It oddly opened to mixed and almost positive reviews, 
but was deemed a major disappointment because the series was well known and it seemed to just be a huge departure and lack the humor and grace that the Lloyd Alexander book series had. I mean, Alexander himself said this about the film. First, I have to say that there is no resemblance between the movie and the book. Having said that, the movie in itself, purely as a movie, I found very enjoyable. I had fun watching it. What I would hope is that anyone who sees the movie would certainly enjoy it, but I also hope that they'd actually read the book. The book is quite different. It's very powerful, very moving story, and I think people would find a lot more depth in the book. Because of its poor sales, it would not see a home video release till 1998 and lives in infamy in the Disney canon. In fact, right now, as of today when we're recording this, there's a meme going around asking people to select which of the Disney animated films they've seen. And it's a general joke going around that it's a lie if your friend who doesn't know much about Disney says they've seen The Black Cauldron. Though, I encourage everyone to go watch it on Disney Plus before you listen to the rest of this episode because it is quite a ride and I personally love it. We'll be right back after this. Hello you wonderful human being. How do I know you're a wonderful human being? Well, if you're hearing this message, it means you're listening to a certain POV podcast, and that makes you awesome. Thanks for your support. This is Pat Edwards from the Let's Rewatch podcast. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm an author. My latest project is a new fifth edition D&D campaign book called The Red Opera. Inspired from the musical album and stage show of the same name, The Red Opera sends you on a twisting saga through dark and dangerous city teeming with intrigue, magic, death, and betrayal, and warlocks. This book is lousy with warlocks and all the mischief that comes with them. (laughs) So here's what I need from you, you delightful slice of podcast listener cake. Go to the pre-launch page on Kickstarter and simply enter your email to follow the project. You're not committing to anything. You're just saying you'd like an email notification when the Kickstarter goes live. And then you can browse the truly outstanding reward tiers we've added to decide if you'd like to support the project. To find the pre-launch page, you can either go to theredopera.com or if you go to my Twitter handle at thepatedwards, my current pinned tweet has a link. Again, thank you so much, you beautiful spoonful of human sugar. Love, Pat. Welcome back, dreamers. I hope you all are in for the wild ride that this interview is going to be. I have one of my favorite people here, a real-life Disney princess, Sam Simon. Sam, welcome to Don't Open Dreams. I'm so happy we finally have you on the show. I am just so ridiculously honored that you called me a princess, so I'm just going to sit over here and just crawl in a corner by. <laughs> I mean, really, we all know you're a queen, but like you're princesses right. are a little more on break. Um, True. So why don't you tell the folks a little about uh, at home a little bit about yourself <laughs> and what connection Disney has played in your life because you're a very Disney connected person. I am. So Disney is literally ingrained into my veins, I think. Um, my parents, big backstory, um, they were uh, secretly married in uh, Disneyland in Prince Charming and Cinderella costumes because uh, they were friends with a guard. So uh, I think I'm the reason that fairy tale weddings exist, or at least I like to tell my family that. Um, so yeah, it's definitely deep ingrained. My first words as a child were Minnie Mouse. 
um, Cute. yeah. And I just knew ever since I was a kid, um, because my parents are crazy, crazy Disney people, that unless I worked for Disney at some point, I would be a huge disappointment. So I said, get me out of Jersey. And when I graduated college, I came down here. And now I'm a leader with costuming at Magic Kingdom. So I get to play with all of our good friends, like Mickey and Minnie and Cinderella and Elsa and all our buddies. We, we love that. And yeah. you and I met when uh, I was a wardrobe supervisor on a production of How to Succeed in Business at yes. the Music Theater. And you played our amazing Hetty. Oh, my goodness. Uh, there's never been a pirate costume that was worn quite like Sam Simon and How to succeed. Listen, so. it's in my closet right now. I'll go whip I'm it on. Let's there, go. There's a reason why you bought that costume at the end of the run. Listen, it's um, so you, good. Listen, you gotta have an not so scary costume, and if you've got one that's literally made to your measurements, it's true. Why not? Why not take it home with you? You're right. So I was so excited. One day you texted me an original cell that you have I from. Do. Black Cauldron that you got in an auction. And I was like, <laughs> fucking Sam, I love this movie. It's such a train wreck. And you're like, I love this movie too. And I was like, cool, you're doing Black Cauldron. And so this has been in the works for months. So this year, two things turned 35. This movie and me. Yes! So all good things, great things happened in 1985. <laughs> Breakfast Club also came out in 1985. Um, also, the world was in shit in 1985. The world is in shit now. We were recording this from quarantine. Nothing changed. Uh, so it's fine. This is a good time. So this one is infamous. It's actually a picture that a lot of even the most hardcore Disney fans have not seen. Um, a lot of that has to do with, I think, that it wasn't on home video until 1998 because it was such a failure. Yep. Um, for the company, it was the most expensive animated picture that had been made at the time, and it was the first animated movie to have a PG rating, which says a lot. Yes. Um, and I believe it was the studio's first, it was also the studio's first animated PG mm-hmm. film. So, obviously, because it was the first. So, Sam, why do you love Black Cauldron? I just remember as a child going up to my parents' like wall of VHS tapes that they had, and I had seen Black Cauldron sitting there, and I was like, Mom, what's that? And she goes, oh, it's just, we have it. It's part of the collection. I was like, okay, well, I want to watch it. And for some reason, Gurgi and I... I connect with Gurgi on, like, a very deep spiritual level. Like, he will give his life for friendship and an apple. And I feel that. (laughs) So that is why I love the movie. I think he's one of the best Disney characters. The movie has a ton of flaws, obviously, which we will get into. Mm -hmm. But Gurgi, I think, is up there. If you want a sidekick, like, I'm rooting Gurgi every day. Like, he'll do anything for you. Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, I didn't actually see this till much, 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 much later. I mean, it's probably been 20 years since I've seen this, but like uh, maybe 15 or so. Yeah, I saw it when I was about 20. And it struck me because I was like, this isn't a Disney movie, but it looks like a Disney yeah. movie. Um, but it is a Disney movie. But it's so interesting because after Lord of the Rings, the books came out. Mm-hmm. There was such a fire between Tolkien and Ursula Le Guin and, um, and George R. Martin had already released the first Game of Thrones books. Like, this kind of fantasy was huge. It was a huge yeah. honor through the 70s. And so it actually, if you're looking at it, it makes sense. And this movie was in production for about 12 years. <laughs> like, it was, it was a really long ever. time coming. 
And it actually, like, I've watched it three times this week because I actually mm-hmm. really like this movie. I did um, the same. Its, despite its flaws, I think I like it because it is so different. But when you look at other movies, so this is the this is the lowest part of the Disney Dark Ages that I think we can get to yeah. financially. Now, as we've got, I've actually done a lot of the Dark Ages and some of the early um, renaissance on the show already. Mm. And the Dark Ages, we have to look at it as financial Dark Ages for Disney. And oh, yeah. the, audi- the audience wanted something different, but we were also in Reagan era, and the world was in a different place. Um, you know, it's... So this film could have been really stellar because, like, I referenced those animated Lord of the Rings movies mm-hmm. from the 70s and, like, The Last Unicorn. Yeah. Where they're just so beautiful and interesting and fantasy was just so rich and lovely mm-hmm. um, that, like, this movie should be good, but it falls flat still. Yeah. Gurgi, Gurgi for me, is standout. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, he's just one of those. But again, this shows that, like, that idea that Disney had plush characters. Like, there's always plush characters in every movie that you can make toys out of. Yeah. And Gurgi's one of those. But And this is even pre-super mass-market production of products for film. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember when I was little, when I had first seen it, which was probably around, I want to say like 97 or 98 is when I first saw it. And I just remember all I wanted was a Gurgi. And it was mm-hmm. impossible to find this merchandise because the movie was such a failure in the box office. And Mm -hmm. I remember one day my dad had gone out and I don't know where he found it, but he made dreams come true and he found a beanie baby of Gurgi from the movie. And that is like my prized possession. It's still sitting in my room at their house. Like, I love that stupid thing. But like, the thing is Disney tried at the time. They were like, let's make a movie that we can get the teenagers to come to Mm -hmm. because teens weren't coming Mm -hmm. to the Disney movies at that time. Mm -hmm. And they tried to make it darker. It got that PG rating, like the Horned King, mm-hmm. like scary, scary he's villain. The sca- he's the terrifying. scariest Disney villain yes. ever. Like he is so scary. Absolutely. Like I'm still scared of the Horned King. Yes. I rewatched yeah. it um, last night, I guess. Yeah, it was either last night or the night before. But Horned King is just, when you see him the first time, you don't even see his face. They just show this shadow, and it's very Maleficent-esque in the way that they yeah. design the character. And then when they finally do show his face, he's literally just a skeleton face with red eyes and horns. Like, mm-hmm. if I was a kid going to see this in the theater, I would be scared out of my mind. I would run out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I. It's there's so that actually times up because it got a 1998 video release. So I'm guessing it probably your dad found it at a Disney store somewhere, or there might have yeah. there might have been a limited amount of merchandise releasing. And this is also sucks because like Alonwi is such a cool Disney princess, and yes, she and she's is off the board. <laughs> um, so you know, I'm Disney has been actually doing a lot of things for all of their anniversaries. Like even mm-hmm. Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea got some yeah. anniversary merch last year. So so maybe in July, now things are kind Hopefully. of halted right now. Yep. Maybe we'll get some Disney store merch. Who knows? Maybe Shop Disney will pop out one or two cool things. We can um, only hope. Well, It'll be you and I, the, the only purchasers of this merch. <laughs> no, you know what? Some hardcore Disney fans are going to be out there. That's um, true. Because they did, Funko did make a, um, a, a, a two-set yeah. last year for the convention. I remember that. And it sold pretty well. It's actually on clearance right now for $8 on Amazon if anybody wants it. You're going to send um, me 
me the link though, right? <laughs> uh, of course I will. Okay, of course great. it's been sitting in my Yeah, it's a set of Terran with the sword and Horn King. Love and that. I believe it was originally forty. It's now twelve dollars, at least it was a couple days ago on Blast. Amazon. Um so let's jump in. The interesting thing I actually think when Disney first acquired the rights for this, they had the rights for the first Game of Thrones books or the first two Game of Thrones books and they were going to adapt Game of Thrones because they were also seeing that like this fantasy genre is so huge and Mm -hmm. this actually goes in tune with the other movies that were being made at the time, looking at like Tron, Black Hole, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Watcher in the Wood Um, so this is totally correct with things Yeah, it's in the realm it is totally in the yeah. realm. And they'd already done, I believe it's Dragon Slayer, the video game, and there was a video yes. game with that. Oh, I and forgot. this looks exactly like mm-hmm. it. Um, and it's funny you mentioned Maleficent because the Horn King was dubbed the father of all evil. And and Ooh, conspiracy theories, let's go. Well, Maleficent Ooh. is the daughter of all evil. Yeah. And so for me, this is medieval, and then like Sleeping Beauty could be Renaissance. Yeah. So this absolutely. idea that they actually exist in the same universe is probably very true for for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fae Folk could be similar. You know, it's one of those things. But, mm-hmm. so, as many people know, and I've talked about in the pre-show, there was actually, this movie was about 35 minutes longer, and because this, you know, it was not testing well, audiences weren't getting it, but also they weren't bringing in audiences of teens. They were testing it with critics and with the Disney execs, mm-hmm. who were older white guys. Um, and bless Ron Miller, he watched <laughs> a lot of things during this time that he didn't need to, but God bless him, we only yeah. have a lot of these movies because of him, but uh, I guess it's so. Let's let's talk about things that work for us first, and then we'll talk about things that don't work. Because I always mm-hmm. think leading with positive, because there is so much good in this movie yes. that makes it so watchable. Um, the the one thing I will say, it's only eighty minutes. It feels way longer. Than <gasps> yeah, it, it feels f- like a two hour <laughs> movie. I watched Harry like Potter. Two hours. <laughs> so I literally understand now why. They went and we went, oh, we need to cut things. And now the problem with this is when you cut things during this time, it was on film. So they found it, they put it up to the light, and they snipped, 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 and literally put it back together with scotch tape. Yep. And you can tell. (laughs) You can tell. And I think that is the biggest issue with this movie. So Mm -hmm. we'll get to it. But things we like. You go first. Show me some things that you love. Things I love. I love that this movie is not a musical. I love that they went off the beaten track with that because mm-hmm. I feel like if we had Ilanwi singing a song, oh, my little bauble, like that would be really weird and I wouldn't yeah. be so into it. I really appreciate the fact that they continued the pattern of like having that magic and that mythicality throughout. Like what mm-hmm. other story do you know that has a psychic pig or dragons and fairies. And then we got those three witches, which I'm sure that we're going to dive into later. They work. Yes, we are. You want to talk about so things good. that work. They work. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's just they did have that continual line. They kept the theming throughout. I think it's just because they were trying to go, like I said, for that teenage realm, which they hadn't really done before. Mm -hmm. And because they were literally snipping things out on the cutting room floor, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that like, if we had seen those cut pieces, we would understand a lot more in the story. 
Yeah, and I think now we're we've had three hour Lord of the Rings movies, three of them. Yes, but, you know, six of them really with <laughs> the Hobbit. We've had the really you know we have two and a half hour superhero movies. Yeah, it is now not out of the realm of possibility um, for us to actually sit through a two and a half or three hour yeah, animated film, especially in the genre. Mm-hmm. So I think now it's really hard to look at this from like. Um, future site and no, mm-hmm. but you know, because then they also were just trying to keep the company open. Yeah. So for the fact that this movie took so long to make, took so much money, and then it got back not even half of that worldwide. Yeah. Because like we're talking, they spent they don't they could they stopped keeping track at one point. It cost so it was like twenty five million to forty four million budget. It cost them about forty four million. Uh, all of a sudden done, and that's pre marketing. That's pre everything. Yeah. And it only it didn't even get international release. It only got a domestic release mm-hmm. for two point one. Oh, sorry, twenty one point three million. Yeah. But also to me, why didn't they release this in the UK? This feels like a very UK I completely movie. agree. It has like a very Celtic feel, especially yeah. when you're looking at the animation, like just the yeah. cells of the backdrops alone. When you see yes. those castles, like it feels Celtic. Oh, yeah. Like Also, th- something that works for me is the, di- so this is the first animated movie to ever have computer generated graphics yes. used in it. And you can tell exactly where they are, mm-hmm. but it's a really cool effect is all of that smoke that they use. Yeah. And it's, it's all the magic effects and it's really fucking cool to me it still holds up oddly enough still really holds up because it's in it works in the realm of what we need for that like idea of that like sickly green and then the red that's destroying them again all of the things coming in out of the culture and i think being able to do that weird digital overlay was so cool and really worked it was so innovative for the times as well because yeah i don't think it would have worked if they didn't have the computer generation like especially for the end when the corned king is getting dragged back into the cauldron and you see mm-hmm. his face like literally ripping apart I don't know what's mm-hmm. ripping apart because he's a skull but I guess he's yeah. something else there too but I think that it really added a lot to the film and I appreciate yeah. the fact that we can tell when it happened because I can mm-hmm. only imagine when this first came out people going and being like what just happened Oh, yeah. Also, people probably saw that Disney label and went and took their kids and went, oh, God, what are we watching? Yeah. Like, I can't I, imagine I, being a little kid. Like I said earlier, like seeing the Horned King as a little kid going to a theater, mm-hmm. those kids must have been absolutely petrified. He mm-hmm. is horrifying. And his death scene, that's got to be the most gruesome thing out of any animated film I have seen across well, the board. It's, it's very on brand with like Indiana Jones, yes. uh, which which I believe it come out at this point because mm-hmm. you literally watch someone melt in that. And that but so yeah. it's one of those that it's is of the time we were getting slasher movies, horror as a genre was stepping up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this was when we had Freddy Krueger movies and the Halloween franchise. Mm-hmm. So it's on brand for that, but it's not on brand for a Disney movie, but it makes it really awesome to watch even in 2020 for me. It's Um, just nice to see something different. Like you don't want it to all be the same. And like, 
I love Oliver and Company. Don't get me wrong. That came out about the same time as this. Yep, two years later. It's such a deep contrast. And thank God for Oliver and Company because that brought us back. But that's a whole nother yeah. story. <laughs> oh, yeah. To think that we went, we had a year off, and then we got Great Mouse Detective, then Oliver and Company, and then yes. Little Mermaid. It's the difference that four years and like a change in leadership yeah. can do. And I don't now, think she- we would have had that without Black Cauldron's failure. I don't think I, we would have had everything. I agree. Like, we needed movies. We needed, like, Fox and the Hound and Black Cauldron yes. to happen because while, both, like, Fox and the Hound is a well-loved movie, it's really dark. It's really sad. Yeah. It is, again, tonally different um, because we were, again, at this point, we were one year away from Walt being gone for 20 years. Yeah. Which, the, it was a hard process. And, like, um, Ron Miller, I believe, would pass, uh, would step down just after this. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeffrey Katzenberg came in the year before... Uh, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg came in the year before this, and so they were just trying to get this out. They were trying to make this movie happen. Something that I do really think story-wise works, I'm a big Dungeons & Dragons fan, and this watches like a Dungeons & Dragons campaign does. Oh, I can absolutely see that. It elevates. Now, I would almost rather listen to... um, There's a great podcast out there called The Encounter Party. Okay. um, Are a... A past guest of the show talking about Grace, uh, Great Mouse Detective, Ned Donovan, mm-hmm. is one of the producers and cast on that, and so he was our... And so they do this, like, long play D&D saga where oh, it's cool. like you're listening to a radio drama, and it's very cool. Yeah. But I almost would love something like that, or, like, I went and ordered the book series this is based on this morning mm-hmm. um, because I'm like, oh, I really want to read these books and see what got adapted, what didn't, because, funny enough, it's based on two books out of a series. Yeah. And I think I think that's where a lot of it went awry because again we weren't at the point where we were really thinking about franchises yet. Star Wars had happened and ended in '83. We had had the last Star Wars film. That was like lightning in a bottle. Indiana Jones was like lightning in a bottle. And so there were these things that Disney wasn't thinking about doing sequels because yeah. um, the uh, uh, now they were starting to brew um, Oliver and Company as a Rescuers uh, yeah. sequel at this point, but it had changed already. Um, and so it's one of those things that, like, maybe if they'd gone, let's do multiple movies, um, because this is based on the Book of Three and the Black Cauldron, both by Lloyd Alexander. There is a third book in the series, mm-hmm. and they had the rights to all three. That's the thing that got me. But I think maybe one of one of the things that um, didn't work was that they were trying to put two um, yeah, books I completely agree. It's kind of like when they did the um, series of unfortunate events movie, and they books, combined. Just... They did not even three books. It was all the books in one film, and it just. I love Jim Carrey, but it did not work. And I feel like that's the same thing with this. You mm-hmm. cannot cram all of that into one book, especially with something as complex as Black Cauldron. Like, there are mm-hmm. so many things happening. Well, and, like, they're starting off, like, the narrative at the beginning actually gives us a really good yeah, idea of the world that beautiful. we're jumping into. And it's only about a minute, but it's all we actually need to jump in. Yeah. Um, but it does feel right from the beginning that we're jumping off really quickly. Yes. Um, so, um... I'm going to, the the characters, I actually think yeah. all of the characters top to bottom are really fun. Um, yeah, I and agree. They all serve a really good purpose. And it does play with that idea of like, we're adding these characters that we need along the way. Cause you've got, you've got this like weird kid that's going to end up being your paladin and the magical princess. And then you get your bard. Yeah. And you've got the quirky sidekick and Gurgi. Um, and you know, there are these things that along the way they hit these steps that actually kind of 
work. But they rush moments that yeah. shouldn't be It's rushed. kind of like they're running up the steps and then they just kind of trip a little bit. And they're like, yeah. no, I didn't yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. It's fine. And they and the, you know, uh, but there are so many great things. And with those characters, we get these three. I'm going to call them witches. They're not really witches. They're I don't spirits. care what they are. They're great. <laughs> you know, step aside, Sanderson sisters, because these three women are. I'm convinced that the Sanderson sisters were based off of them. Like I've been you know saying what? that for years, and I think they I are. I would not. I would not be surprised by that because they're archetypally three the same way. Mm-hmm. You've got you've got the dumb one. You've got, uh, that's nice. You've got the the one that's pretty than the rest and then you've got the craggy mean one yeah and so like but they're so good but to me his two interactions with both of them they're there only because they need them to be there even though they gave us also these three iconic voice actresses from the time who've done a ton like I know all three of those voices Mm -hmm. um, but I had to look them up because I don't know them but I know all of their work yeah um, um, and so, but it's it's interesting because they're there because we need this cauldron, but at the same time, you know, it, it again, you can tell these moments where the movie is just kind of crammed together. Yeah, I mean, there are transitions throughout the movie. Like, let's just go to, for example, when they're going to the witch's house, if we would like to call it that, and they start out in a hole that they have fallen into with the fair folk where these fairies have found their pig, which Taryn has lost for the 50th time, even though that was literally his one job to watch this stupid thing. (laughs) That's all he had to do. And he lost it like four times in the movie. But we end up in the fairy thing, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, we'll help you get there. And they just kind of levitate into the sky, and the next thing you know, they're standing in front of this witch's house, and you're like... What was our journey? Like, this does not look like any police else that we have been throughout this whole film. How did we get here? It's very confusing. And that's not the only transition. It happens throughout. So it's really a lot. When when he ends up in the dilapidated castle of the the Horn King is like, and you've got all of the the you've got all of the like vagrants and my my favorite little goblin in the whole world i love him so much oh my god creeper is so, so funny <laughs> creeper is so pure i love him so much he reminds me a lot of um in anastasia the little uh white bat bartok yeah yes, he reminds yes. me of him and i'm like he's wow. so good i know um, but that's another one where it feels rushed and then the horn king just shows up because yeah. it feels like there are these moments that we actually kind of want to live in and enjoy the world yeah but then you're like crap We've got to tell more stories, so let's take out this world building and cram the story in. But sometimes you need that world. You need that that context. There were moments where, like, I feel like if we'd gotten where, like, there was, like, where they had to, like, have a battle of wits with the witch, Mm -hmm. the witches or something, and, like, that actually felt to me like a really good end point for a first movie. Yes, And then pick up there for a second movie. Mm -hmm. Um... You know, because then they've actually got to get to the horn. Because then I would like to see the horn king try to throt them some more. I wanted more backstory with the horned king. Like, he is such a good villain, but there's really, there's nothing to tell you about him. And it's in complete contrast to, like, Sleeping Beauty. Like, we don't know everything about Maleficent, but we know, like, hey, she's mad because of this. She's out to get them because of this. Horn king? Like, he's just a bad king. He's really scary. Uh, and to me, because I guess it's because I haven't read the book and we're working with a source material, mm-hmm. to me, it feels like 
he should be connected to the cauldron other than just yes. an evil king was turned into this cauldron and that's how they're going to stop this evil guy. There feels like almost no connection there. Yeah. And I also don't truly, like, I feel like it's almost like the Deathly Hollows. Things have to work in three. Yes. And so, like, we get the sword. The sword makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like Alonwi's bobble could have actually been another magical artifact that she was born I mean, with. Alonwi is and just a whole thing to begin with, because honestly, we first meet her, and she comes in, and she goes, I'm Princess Alonwi. I don't know exactly what princesses looked like back then. Is she really a princess? Because also the Horned King addresses that later and calls her a scullery maid. So yeah. is this girl just a girl that found a magic bobble? Like, we don't know if she's a princess. Maybe she's not. She's not in the lineup. So, you know, that's the rule breaker. Or maybe she's maybe she's of a kingdom the Horn King has death. That's another thing. Yeah. Like, show that really the Horn King killed her family and she got away. The bobble is what saved her. Yeah. Because I kind of love that we're living in a world where people's f- entire fates are connected to a magical item. And I actually Yeah, really I love, love that. that. I love that idea that we all get a hero or, like, lots of people get heroes journeys and sometimes they're connected sometimes they're not yeah so like because that bobble to me felt very legends of zelda nabi i agree like that yeah. his little fairy um it just didn't talk but it's got a it's got such a personality that's mm-hmm. another thing i do really like everything that's in this movie is like brimming with personality it's brimming with spirit mm-hmm. i actually really like that it's a lot of fun it's just i um, wish they expanded on it more like i want to know more about this everybody is, this is a situation that i'm craving world building. I'm craving yes. more story. I want to live in this world as a viewer for as long as I can because we know they're always going to defeat the villain. We know that's going to happen. I want to see Terran led astray at one point um, and again, you know, it's they're working within a genre so Alonwi only has as much agency as women in fantasy had which sucks yeah. but it explains why but I also would love to see that either is she legitimately crazy? Because I would love to see that, like, maybe she's a young witch who has all of that this power would not and, surprise me. and she's a little cuckoo. Yeah. Or is she actually the only one left of a kingdom and the only thing that kept her safe was this bobble? And is the bobble like the spirit of a witch or wizard that is mm-hmm. keeping her alive? There are all these things that, again, I haven't read the books. I would love to hear from any yeah. of our listeners if you've read the books. I'm going to read them soon. Maybe I'll do an episode just about those because... You know, it's adaptation is such a weird thing. I point to Percy Jackson when they had such great book series or the series of Unfortunate Events before the Netflix season. They had such great source material to then run in another direction with it that just didn't work. And so, you know, that's a lot of those those things. But a lot of what I love is intrinsically tied to what... And I don't hate anything about this movie. No, not at all. I'm just disappointed. And to me, I think every issue I have with this is deeply connected to we can see where it was just chopped out of thin air. Yeah. And it's very obvious when they do have those chops, like you can tell. I remember when I was watching it last night or whatever, there was a point where they had just gotten the cauldron and then all of a sudden, if you watch really closely, if you blinked, you wouldn't see it, but the screen goes black for half a second and you're like, how did we get over here? So you can definitely tell when there's those transitions. But another thing that I really appreciate about the film is back to um, all of their magical objects. I think Mm -hmm. one of the most brilliant things in that film is um, Fluter Flam, their little harpist. He's got the lyre that bings a little string every time he tells a lie. And I think that is such an ingenious 
way to have a prop or something magical for him because every single one of our characters in this film mm-hmm. has an object that's significant to them and has yeah. a little bit of magic going on with it. It's a liar's liar. Exactly. I think it's so It's funny. very clever. And, it's so, and I love a bard, so I yes. always play a bard in D&D. They're just fun. They're yeah. vaguely sexual always, and they're just super fun. But it's this idea that, like, it's a little bit like My Little Pony where you figure out what your thing is and you get your cutie mark. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got this thing, and so he's a bard and he's this kind of old wizened guy and he's kind of useless but like everybody needs bardic inspiration yeah so but it's it's that idea of what happens when you're hoping the liar is always going to be able to tell if someone else is lying but it's telling if you're lying it's you're so right that it's this brilliant little thing that actually didn't it's funny in the moments but it could have served a much bigger purpose for them absolutely and but I love how he's introduced. I think he's introduced at the perfect time. Mm-hmm. He's like, we need this perfect little team. Um, something something else that I just love. Um, it's the pig. I always forget her name. Henwin. Henwin. Oh, Henwin. She's the most. She's the most glamorous pig that's I ever existed. Her. I'm sorry, Miss Piggy. But can we talk about her eyelashes? Oh they designed God. her with those like beautiful eyelashes, and I know why they did it. It's because often we don't spend a lot of time close up on an animal's face. Mm-hmm. Um, they went in on her face the whole did. time. There are so many close-ups, especially when her little nose is in the water dish to do her little magic mm-hmm. things. Like, she is beautiful. She's so yeah. well-designed from an animation mm-hmm. standpoint, and she's consistent throughout the film, which I this, really love. This movie is so beautiful. It's so yeah. rich and lovely to watch. It is part of a genre that's outside anything Disney had done, which I love. Because Disney had redefined fantasy as a family and kids genre and made it accessible to small children so they didn't have to read those super dark fairy tales, which I love. Yes. <laughs> and Which is funny that End of the Woods eventually would come full circle back to Disney and Disney made the End of the Woods film. Yeah. Um, and so they kind of reclaimed that. But You know, it's one of those things that this, again, there's so many right decisions that were made along the way, and you can tell the time that was made. There's another big moment, and it's the fight with the Horn King's horde, because he's making these terrible living dead that even, like, his actual living horde of barbarians are afraid of. And, like, it's just kind of done very quickly, because they just gurgy jumps in the cauldron, because you can also tell, I know that's where a big chunk of the, the, because that was deemed as too scary, and it was a ratings issue, so they kind of went, cool, we'll just take a chunk of this battle out. And I know that battle was five or ten minutes longer. Which I would have loved to see. I would have loved. I know it's not possible because we know those cells probably literally went in the trash. Absolutely. They were in a recycling bin. And so there's no way we could get a restored version of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll we'll talk about that. Just that. I'll, I'll put a pin <laughs> we'll, in that. We'll, 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 we'll get back we'll, to that. We'll, we'll save that. To we'll the talk end. about that. Um, but again, there's so much good. But I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna pinpoint. I think where the biggest issue was where a lot of this started. Okay. There were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine writers that came and went on this movie. Yep. 
And it's story by, which is a very cryptic way of saying so many people touched it. Because at Disney specifically, you'll have people that will develop a, the they'll develop the non-narrative plot. They will develop this, and then they have a story uh, storyline developers, and then they actually have the script developers. So you have all these people who physically touch it and develop how the story is going to happen before the writers sit down. And we've had storyboarding and things, and so along this way, and some of these people were like a who's who of Disney, but a lot of them were really well known to the the comic books and yeah. to to the fantasy genre. And so again, all of that should have helped. Um, but it's like too many cooks in the kitchen. Like they need to stick cooks. together. Mm-hmm. And by the time you've got more than three people writing on that, you start losing this and you start losing this. And by the time you know it, you've got 20 different storylines, which is what I think we really do have in this movie, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. really unfortunate because I would love to know what the first version was like. Yeah. Or I would have even loved to seen early scripts because again they yeah. worked on the script a lot and because we know most most big movies have a, a the main A plot they have a B plot that affects the A plot and then typically there's a C plot that solves itself yes. somewhere along the way and in this we actually have an A B C ish plot <laughs> with like a D E and F on the side. Oh, you, you got some D, you got some E, you got some F, you got some G. You got a Z over there too. <laughs> the problem is they do what sometimes an unsuccessful D&D long-term campaign will do. They will keep introducing characters before you've alleviated the use of other characters. Yeah. And so, like, the fairy folk were introduced literally just to get them out of a hole. And where the fairy folk, I feel like, were probably a much bigger thing. Or, I feel like yeah. they could have found a third object or a fourth object. Maybe it was this idea of, like, a pentagram where you needed five objects. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that was five beings. Because I feel like at that point... One of the fairy folks should have gone with them. There should have been like a young fairy warrior, or yeah. or I something mean, that they, like they did have the one fairy, the little. He reminds yeah. me of Grumpy, and he brought them to the oh, witch's yes. place. He went yeah. along with them, but yeah. I mean, I would have loved more. Like, I think one of the cutest characters in that movie is the little fairy in the pink dress, the little girl. She just has the cutest little voice, and I'm just like, where where have you been this whole film? I love you. Oh, yeah, we're <laughs> yeah. like, I feel like they should have been. They should have been around earlier because, okay, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something that I also think might be the root of a lot of the issue. Mm -hmm. Taryn is so unlikable. Yes. I I, do not root for him at all. It's like Jen and Dark Crystal because this has a lot of the same issues that Dark Crystal has. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't kill me off there, but like Dark Crystal for me, it's visually stunning. I will never watch it again because I fall asleep. That's how I feel too. Um, And it's, it's one of those things where... So then we get Alanwi, who's a little sassier, and so we like her. But again, Alanwi, also kind of unlikable, but a great character. And so it's one of those things that, like, they make the old white dudes interesting, and then they make the, the magical people interesting. Because then you get Gurgi, who's thrown in. With Gurgi, you cannot tell me that he's not Gollum from Lord of the Rings. I just, I want Gurgi to have his own movie. I want Gurgi to get his redemption for the world. Oh, I want Gurgi to have a short film called Munches and crunches, where all Gurgi is doing is listen. Uh, I'm here in, for it. <laughs> Wait, I can we bring Gurgi to Epcot for food and wine? Maddie, I know what we're doing this fall. <laughs> Gurgi and figment, Gurgi and figment. Oh, <laughs> Maddie, so let's go. <laughs> but you know, it's one of those that it's just. 
I, I don't care about rooting for him. Mm-hmm. I'm rooting for that world because I never want to see a world get pulled into a demonic wasteland. Yeah, absolutely. And also, we're recording this in the wake of the protests and the fact that we're living in a violent police state. And so, like, so much of that is actually evident in this, and it's evident in a lot of fantasy because true life reflects art. And so it's one of those things that, like, I hate this idea of this, like, demonic evil dictator as cool of a villain as he is like destroying this world and so it's one of those things that like I want to root for our heroes but other than Gurgi and being sad that Gurgi throws himself but like also I remember the first time I'm seeing this I was like we like Gurgi way too much for him to live through this movie and that is something, I mean, granted, like, I'm a purveyor of Disney content, and so it's one of those things that, like, we always know there's going to be some problems in a Disney film, and someone's mm-hmm. going to die, or there's going to be a loss of someone, but, like, uh, you kind of want it to be Taryn. Like, I kind of want Taryn to die in oh, this. Oh, yeah, when I he's going like, on the cliff, I'm like, please jump. Please I, go. Well, I feel like it's his, I feel like it's his hero's journey that he does. Yeah. That, like, because the Black Cauldron, and something that I also, it washes itself back up at the end and the three witches take it. Um, but, like, I feel like it shouldn't just be in order to vanquish a, a darkness, it also needs to vanquish a light. Like, Mm -hmm. there's always this idea in magic or power that there needs to be balance. I feel like it had to take Terran with the Horn King yeah, I completely agree with that. And then it actually neutralized, because I feel like if it sucks, like the whole idea was like it's going to suck both in, and then the cycle would start over and the cauldron wouldn't be stopped. Because mm-hmm. to me, I want the cauldron to be at the base of all of the evil in us. Yes, the, and like, it's not order... there all the way throughout, which is really, I think, problematic to the storyline, because you're right. calling this movie The Black Cauldron. That's the first thing you see at the beginning of the film when they're giving that little prelude into it, is they mm-hmm. just show a picture of this terrifying cauldron with this mm-hmm. man's face on it and you're like what is that see i want i wanted that like i wanted the the cauldron to be tied to like a hell god and so this evil king was so evil that it separated himself into this this he was trapped in this cauldron mm-hmm. and the old you know and so it's one of those things that the, and then he, the other half of him became the, hell, the horn king or mm-hmm. this hell god needed to get out and so that's why this cauldron existed yeah but um, there's really no connection it's just the horn king no. he all they say is he wants to get this cauldron to bring back the army of the dead okay but how do we know about that? And then you flash forward into the film, and I don't know if you caught this, but at one point, um, oh, my Roomba's talking to me. Hello, Roomba. <laughs> so at one point in the film, um, the witches even say, nobody has asked about the cauldron in 2,000 years. Yeah. Which I'm like, wait a minute. There ain't no way that the Horn King and all his, like, bougie people over in his castle are 2,000 years old. I believe it for the witches because they are mythical beings. But I know that all those barbarians in the castle, those were people. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. how do we know all of this? How has the story not changed or evolved? Because it's kind of like the telephone game where you tell one person Mm -hmm. something and then by the time it gets to the 10th person, it's a completely different story. So how do we know any of this is happening. Because I also feel like part of this should also be like the Horn King is retaking this this world because he needs to find the cauldron. Yeah. And those three, I actually, because like I get the three witch 
trope because you've got like the three fates from Greek and so like that makes a lot of sense and so this idea that maybe if they were even more neutral parties who they always wanted to you know they kept moving the the cauldron because it actually caused chaos and they were goddesses of chaos or something Mm -hmm. and so they're this like neutral evil idea um but chaotic neutral and that maybe the horn king needs to find it so that he can destroy it because then mm-hmm. he can never be stopped and then i would have liked this thing if maybe they find the sword haphazardly yeah he just kind of picks it up off a dead guy and you're like Hold and on. so i'm i would hope that like oh that sword is a big deal that it is part of like three or five magical items that need to like and so the horn king has no idea they have these items mm-hmm. and so they all get pulled in and there's this prophecy that like a good a good soul with these items needs to stop yeah or you know a good soul with these things and like at the end the witches don't get to keep the 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 cauldron is actually destroyed because the horn king but it causes the sacrifice of a hero and i would have loved that um and then i would have loved because then you have the travel on of gurgi and henwin and alanwi and the bard are all Mm -hmm. safe but then it makes sense that they would continue traveling telling the story of of the Black Cauldron and how they defeated the Horn King and kind of helping revitalize the kingdom. Again, this is a revisionist view from the future. Um, But yeah, so there's actually not as much bad as this with this film as people say. No. I just, it points to, I think there were too many writers and that they cut, they haphazardly just cut too much. And I think it was just, uh, just, uh, it was hard. It's too much. But, it was too much, but a lot of times uh, a, a studio, um, a company, a lot of these things are never going to be able to change and kind of come through. They were actually trying an older technique of storytelling that they had changed themselves, and mm-hmm. they were trying to make it work. Something I also really do love about this is the score. I think the score, yes. it's an epic fantasy score. It's really beautiful. It doesn't actually sound like other Disney movies, which I really it like. It kind of just reminds me of, like, if you're playing, like, a Zelda video game or something mm-hmm. like that. It's just kind of got mm-hmm. that little trickle of, like, hey, we know what world we're living in, and I yep. love that they do that through the, throughout the music because throughout the storyline you're like what the hell is happening right now yeah sometimes because of how they cut it and how it was written you didn't actually know um you you didn't know how you were supposed to be feeling you didn't know what was happening because sometimes we launched right into battle or we launched right into conflict and you would only know by listening to the music yeah um and so i mean i give this movie uh you know, let's let's talk about it. It has continually been reviewed since it came out, which is good that people mm-hmm. continue to review it. And now that it's on Disney Plus, I recommend everyone going to watch it. If you've never seen this movie, definitely don't show it to your kids, no. tweens, teenagers, probably. <laughs> but like, this is one that I say everybody go watch. But like, it got a really really rough. Um, uh, Yeah, it was a rough start for this movie, but I feel like it's kind of made that resurgence. I'm appreciating for that for the 35th, they did come out and they released the DVD of it again. And I'm like, get it out to the public. Like, even though it was a huge failure, I feel like it's a really important stepping stone for the Walt Disney Film Company just in general, because I truly don't think if we didn't have this, we wouldn't have gone on to have movies like Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Like, we needed this failure to show us what didn't work and to prove what does. 
And I think this movie actually laid the pipework for movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, some of these oh, yeah. other epic movies that we got. Um, again, I think if they had just had franchise vision then and maybe focus more on, because I think they could have put three movies out. Like if you thought about if they'd worked at all three continually, worked on them at the same time, they could have feasibly for only a little bit more money at that time, mm-hmm. probably having to double it. But then if you'd release three, but you know and again that's us looking with future sight but what's interesting for this movie is so Rotten Tomatoes is a uh, a review aggregator and it puts all of them together it was actually only reviewed by 31 critics over over its total existence Excellent. and it has about a 55% now there they do have some really interesting things to say um and so this is from 2018. It's from the Washington Post. Um, Paul Asantio. Uh, he said it's technically brilliant, uh, though short on narrative, which it's what we've been talking about. I agree. Um, the Black Cauldron is painless, old-fashioned way to take the kids out. I don't agree with that. No, not at all. Um, but it is a triumph. Did he watch for it? Ani- <laughs> I uh, right. But it is a triumph for the animation department at Disney Studios, where it has been in development for almost a dozen years. Mm-hmm. That I completely agree with, yes. because especially if you're looking at things like Aristocats and rescuers mm-hmm. and Robin Hood that came out in the 10 years prior where they were rotoscoping so much they were reusing things and that's honestly to me this is not any bearer on plot than like the Aristocats or Robin Hood yeah. it's just they just use their bear plots better mm-hmm. Than than things. Um, now, Vanity Fair in 2009 uh, said the characters, though cute and cuddly and sweet and mean and ugly and simply <laughs> awful, don't really have much to do, which remain of interest to any of the youngest minds. And again, that's the same thing. We get brilliant characters who have nothing to do. They are on an epic journey. Um uh, you know, and Chicago Reader felt that it's quite good, though, by the impossible standards that the film set for itself, it was inevitably always going to fall short. Mm-hmm. And again, same thing. That's the thing, is it's... Um, What's interesting is Roger Ebert, back in 2000, for the 15th anniversary, actually reviewed it. And he loved it. He gave it a 3.5 out of 4. How kind! Which is huge for him. He hates everything. And he said, by the end of Black Cauldron, I was remembering with something of a shock of nostalgia, the strength and utter storytelling conviction of the early Disney animators. The Black Cauldron is a return to tradition. Um, And it does feel, in many ways, like those early, early movies. But what's interesting is in those early movies, like Cinderella, it's not a particularly um, interesting plot or Sleeping Beauty. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot said in those movies. I mean, Sleeping Beauty is asleep for half the film. They they do more show than tell, which I think is way, way important. Yeah. uh, in a movie like this mm. where I wanted to see way more. Um, now, uh, you know, I'm, n- I'm never going to care about someone who whose review channel is called Rachel's Reviews. Uh, she definitely, she said it's definitely one of the worst Disney animated films and it gets worse every time I watch it. Ma'am, you must Disagree. not be reaching... 
I disagree. She's bitter. And, and Phil Hall from Edge Boston said that it's Disney's worst animated feature. That was in 2010. I'm sorry. Has he seen Chicken Little? Like, come on. Um, home on the Range. Bye. <laughs> that okay, was Sam, even worse. We're going to have another conversation because I recently watched Home on the Range and I loved every <gasps> second of that movie. Oh, Maddie, I, know, I don't know if we can be friends anymore. I, think, I know it's because I went in and I was like, this is going to be the worst movie ever. And it feels like an old Alan Menken musical. The only thing I hate about it is Roseanne Barr. I think she ruins the whole movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll get into that later, um, though. <laughs> we will get into that later. But, you know, so it's one of those things that I think... I think, you know, a lot of critics gave this 7.5 out of 10, a B minus. I think all of those That's are fair. actually really, they're kind reviews yeah. because there is a lot there is a lot wrong with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, also the voice cast was a really great voice cast of the time of yeah. Shakespearean actors who had done fantasy films because it sounds right. Their voices, they just sound so lovely saying these lines. Yeah, and even when um, you're listening to it, even if you mm-hmm. have not seen a lot of other films like I recognize almost every single voice mm-hmm. in this film and I'm like I don't know where you're from but I do yeah. know exactly who you are yeah this also was about the same time that Disney was thinking of ad- adapting Shakespeare into yeah. a similar style of animated film and I'm almost I would have loved to see what they'd done with something maybe like Midsummer, which would have been very silly mm-hmm. but like th- thinking knowing that they were thinking about doing Hamlet or Macbeth um, and then seeing what they did with this I'm really happy they didn't one because in the 80s we weren't cutting down Shakespeare yet we were still doing four hour Shakespeare so it's it's that idea of Huh, you know, I, this is. I think this was the best case scenario for the time, and yeah. I agree with you. If we hadn't have landed here, they would not have pushed forward both Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company. And then, because of Great Mouse Detective, we would have never gotten Little Mermaid. Yep. And so, this movie set in pace. Also, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. All of these movies started in development shortly after this because this didn't work. But it doesn't mean that it won't work. Yeah. So, and. I think we've we've been dodging around this. I always ask. Normally, it's sociopolitically, how do we think this stands up in 2020? I, the only thing that I think is questionable is the... Um I guess she's supposed to be like a gypsy Romani, the heavy set dancer who's yeah. like oddly sexual. That's the only thing that I went, oh, that's a little tacky. Because they were. It's very out of place. It doesn't fit anywhere, and I don't think it has a reason to be there. I think maybe the only reason that would have stayed was, like I said earlier, this was meant to bring teens back. And yeah. the first thing she does is it is very quick, but that larger gypsy woman does do a big spin on this table and her entire skirt comes up and you can yep. see her little red underwear. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that is a very bold and risky move for Disney to do. And they did that a couple times in the film well, where the sexuality, yeah. especially with the one heavier set, yes. which Fluter yeah. Flam is like literally in the middle of her boobs gasping for breath yeah. as a frog. And you're like, yeah. Why? Well, because he's a frog, it's okay. Yeah. But it's one of those things that, again, this is also the mid-80s. I wouldn't think it would float now mm-hmm. because I think it would be a waste of space now. Um, yeah. You know, I, I would have loved, like, a, a now I would hope for a brassy, demony something, like a magical, like, bar winch that actually runs the bar. Yeah. Like, I would... But like, she's I so would, unneeded. Like, it was so completely yeah. unnecessary. And she's the only female besides Ilanwi that is in that castle. And you're like, where did you come from? Why are you here? Like, we literally only see her for maybe 30 seconds. Yep. And you're just like, what? 
Maybe that's on the cuttering floor. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, I guess. And I guess it makes sense that they would have, like, pillaged and brought her with them. And she's like, well, I could die in my village or come with these guys and, Mm -hmm. I don't know, give me food, I guess. She's just, like, like the town prostitute. And you're like, why? Yeah, that's the only thing I went, "Mm, that's out of taste. Everything else, I think, stands up. And actually, story-wise, I think the story we do have is good. Um, And so this actually leads me to that we have, you know, Disney is in this... I don't want to say renaissance of live action because it's not don't, really... Don't be that kind, <laughs> Maddie. Um, we're in a time where they're using live action to keep property titles and copyrights and trademarks. And so this is actually one that they've greenlit, which yeah. I think is actually a brilliant idea. Listen, I'm going to play Gurgi. I'm here. I'm ready. It's the role I was born to play. <laughs> Listen, I will call head of Disney Studios. Thank you. We'll get you in there. Thanks. But I actually think because they're in a franchise mind, to me, this makes a perfect franchise. Yeah. You've got three books. You can make three movies. Um Honestly, I know they're using him so much, but like Tom Holland would be a great Terran. Yeah. I also think, I do also think this is a really good opportunity. It's another place where we're in a mythical other world, throw all racial casting out the door. Yep, bye. Throw it all out. And like, give us some, like, uh, like give us some really interesting, amazing actors who are all yep. from different ethnic backgrounds. I would love like Idris story. Elba to do Horn King. I think that Ooh. would be an incredible casting. I would love to see that. Like, Idris, he if can, you're listening, he, hi. <laughs> he, could, he could make up for uh, that McCavity debug. <laughs> no one wants to talk about that. Don't. We're not going to talk about cats. I have a lot of feelings. Yeah, but, like, you've got so many good, like, a Jonathan Price would be a great flimmer flam. And, like, yes. there's just so many, there's so many good things that, like, and age up Tarwin and age up Alanwi a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, like, make this fairy folk fun. Like, you could, this could be really, really cool. This could be real. So this is the one out of, like, because it was within a couple weeks they announced this, um, Treasure Planet, Atlantis, mm-hmm. and Hercules. And out of all of those, the only two I actually really want them to make is this and Atlantis. I yep. think are both really great choices. But again, it's because we're at a point where they could visually build this world. And um, my only thing was they need to keep someone like Tim Burton away from this movie. Yeah, no, don't um, let him touch this. This is so they've been developing a relationship with Guillermo del Torres because he's supposed to del Toro because he's supposed to do the new Haunted Mansion movie, mm-hmm. which makes a ton of sense yes. to me. Um, and so, but this also seems like something that's in his realm of possibility, and I think it would be a really awesome trio of movies and I say let's move forward with them they need to do them but they need to do three they need to go in knowing they're going to do three and expand the story give us the story that like that original writer had written like give it to us I I think if they didn't it would be worse than Beauty and the Beast in my opinion so (laughs) that's the thing if they tried to remake this movie the way it is and they green screen that's the thing I also want to see them make a lot of practical sets maybe green screen the background I want them to go out go out to Scotland go find a dilapidated castle sitting out there like, I'm sorry, there are 500 million. You put the Horn King over in Scotland, I'm in it to win it. I'm here. Or even go use some of those Lord of the Rings sets that are still in New Zealand. Yeah, absolutely. Because my thing is, if Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, if Game of Thrones can do it on a TV budget, with because their sets always looked killer. Yes. So, like, um, and I think we didn't really talk about it, but design-wise, I think this movie looks just like a medieval storybook looks, and I think That's it looks beautiful. smaller. And the ending credits looking like a book. Oh, so 
beautiful. I think it's so great. And so I say this is one of those that move forward with that live action remake. Let's do it. Let's you know what? Let's get some justice for Black Cauldron. Please. Um, now I will say it's not always had a bad rep at the company because when they opened Tokyo Disneyland, their castle there, yeah. they, they had a walkthrough attraction which was Black Cauldron. You actually went into a room and the Horn King appeared out the cauldron. Dude, I would me, have loved to see that in person. I've seen it on YouTube and I'm like, this is my calling. I need I'm to gonna, be here. I, I'm going to put it on our Facebook so everybody can watch it. It's in two parts. It's like a 25 minute yeah. walkthrough. Um, and the Horn King it's, is it's, terrifying. He's so scary. And there's a dragon. His griffins are there. The goblins are there. Yeah. It's really, really cool. It's like a it's like a way bigger version of the Sleeping Beauty walk through mm. at Disneyland. Um, and so like that only closed like three or four years ago. Yeah. Maybe a little more now. Maybe it was like two. It was either 2010 or 2014 that it closed. But it wasn't too long I, ago. No, but I think it's one of those things that it obviously worked, and in international markets they like black culture. Yeah. So my thing is like lean into this and make it a world that looks like our world culture that watches Disney movies. Mm-hmm. Like if they don't put at least one person from every country that they distribute to in this movie, um, like come the fuck, like yeah. let's just do it. So I think this gets our seal of approval even with our our problems with it absolutely also give us also give us a really cute like motion capture gurgi like i'm gurgi i'm playing (laughs) gurgi I don't know what you're I talking meant, about. I meant the design. I want oh, okay, the design of him. Oh, yeah, he's going to be cute because I'm going to voice him. Me, so it's give fine. Give me a cute CGI Henwin. I need, I, need a cute little, I need a cute little pig plush to go with my cute baby. Oh, plush. she's so cute. So, um, uh, so, Sam, I know we're getting near the end of our time that we have you. I so, know. this has been so much fun. Tell the audience at home where they can find you online. So, you can find me on Instagram. It's real easy. Sam underscore Simon. And I'm also on Facebook. Facebook, Samantha Simon, my acting page is up there as well. And I'd love to talk to you guys. If you guys have any more about Black Cauldron, I can talk about it all day, every day, because I have a lot of feelings, but just not cats. Don't talk to me about that. <laughs> we will never talk about cats. We don't discuss we do it. Not, we do not stand. Thank God it's an advertisement <laughs> property. Uh, well, Sam, I love you. Thank you so much for being on the show. I love you too. Thanks, Maddie. Can you believe we've been friends for seven years? And it all started because I compared you to Alana the Lioness. Tamara Pierce really set the tone of our friendship. A love of magic. Briar Moss. Fantasy. Briar Moss. Powerful women. And of course, Briar Moss. I'm Anna. And I'm MJ. And we invite you to join our circle of friendship. Where we do a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Circle of Magic series by Tamara Pierce. We answer important questions like, how does Moonstream let certain dedicates take care of children? Can you imagine anyone else but Mandy Patinkin playing Nico? Knives, Briar. And Knives! Join us every other Monday at cofpodcast.libsyn.com or wherever you download podcasts. But seriously, Knives... Thank you, as always, for listening to the Dole Open Dreams podcast. June was Pride Month, but because of COVID-19, Pride Festivals and marches from all over have been canceled. So we here at Dole Open Dreams, it's Pride Summer. 
on our Teespring, we have some fun Pride items that we are selling through really quickly, and they go all the way through the end of August, and all proceeds will go to the Aliforni Center in New York, as well as the Center for Transgender Equality. We're introducing, in collaboration with an Etsy store called Limerick Oddities, all one word, a Pride bag clips, a trading pin stickers for Dole Up and Dreams. And 100% of sales from our Dole Up and Dreams Pride bag clip will go to the Okra Project, which is a coalition helping trans people of color. The links to both of these can be found on our social media on a link tree. A big thank you to Certain Point of View Media for having us on your network and the support of all the amazing creative people there. As always, you can find us across all of social media on Facebook at Dole Up and Dreams Podcast, on Instagram at Dole Up and Dreams, on Twitter at Dole Up Pod, and even on TikTok at Maddie Lime. I want to thank Carl, Firefly, Lex, Sasha, Jared, Case, Katie, Jesse, Rav, Heather, and all of the amazing patrons over on Patreon. We have some huge upcoming projects, and the Dolphin Dreams family is growing. We'll soon be offering a movie musical podcast, a cultural cringeworthy movie podcast, a limited run series about the Tudor wives, as well as our take on the true crime genre. Check out our Patreon and subscribe for only $2 a month. That's right. It's just two bucks a month, but we will take more if you want to give it. <laughs> Where you can find exclusive new content early, video content of the reopening of Disney World. I have a special episode just going up on there about what pandemic at Disney World looks like, as well as discount codes and free merch exclusive to our Patreon. A huge thank to David White, our audio editor, Angela Gwynn, our research assistant, and Brett Eagleton from the Let's Rewatch podcast for the music in today's episode. Until next time, may your days be filled with dull whip and dreams. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.